But then we come to Ecclesiastes, who's more like this sharp middle-aged critic. And he says, You think using wisdom will bring you success. You'd better think again, because life here under the sun is meaningless. And that's a phrase he uses a lot in this book. But to understand this book, we have to realize first that we're hearing two voices. So first there's the teacher, and we've been calling him the critic. He's the main voice in the book. But he is introduced to us by another figure, the author. And he's the one who's collected the critic's words, and then at the end of the book summarizes everything and gets the final word. So why does the author want us to hear from the critic? Well, he wants to turn your view of the world upside down, and he's going to let the critic explore three really disturbing things about the world. And we should warn you, these are pretty intense. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us who are gathered here. Take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So last week we looked at Proverbs. And uh, it's this great, great book of wisdom. We all ought to read it and study it. But there is a problem with Proverbs. Proverbs is a little too simple. Because the, the gist of Proverbs is, if you are faithful and obedient to God, and you seek out God's wisdom, then life's going to be just fine for you. And everything will work out. And the problem is, we all know people who are faithful and obedient to God whose lives do not look that great. We all know that bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. We all know people who are living exactly the way they're supposed to and disaster strikes and it wrecks their life. And if all we had to go on was Proverbs, then we, we really have a problem because then either we have to say that their faith wasn't real or the Bible isn't true. And so the book of Ecclesiastes allows us to look at God's wisdom in a deeper way. It adds some perspective to it. And so it is a more difficult book to read. Most of us don't actually read Ecclesiastes, right? Most people will read Proverbs because, again, Proverbs is nice. Proverbs just makes it sound like there's just this clear formula you can follow. You do this, this happens, and it's a good life, and it's great, and we're all happy. But you need Ecclesiastes alongside it. Because if, if Proverbs is the battle plan, right? no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. Ecclesiastes gives you the way to navigate life when Proverbs doesn't seem to be working for you. So we're starting in the very first chapter, Ecclesiastes 1, the first ten verses. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. 
The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, and around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is nothing new under the sun. This may be the most profound bit of wisdom anywhere in the Bible. It's one of those fundamental truths that we don't really want to accept. We like the idea of human progress. We like to imagine that every crisis we face is something new, but it's not. The world was ancient when we were born. We have such a narrow perspective that we tend to think that we're more unique and special than we really are. And I'm sorry if I'm being a real downer, but, you know, sometimes it happens. Sometimes the Bible's a bit of a downer. We tend to see the events of our lives as much bigger and more significant than they actually are. Written history dates back about 6,000 years. All of recorded history has taken place within the last 6,000 years. But as best as we can tell, we humans have been walking this earth for at least 300,000 years. 98% of human history happened before we invented writing. The earth was here long before we were born. And it will be here long after we are gone. In a hundred years, no one will remember anyone in this room except for God. We'll be forgotten. And there is something kind of disturbing about recognizing that reality. This, by the way, is one of the reasons why when I, when I teach on Genesis, I find it so important to recognize that, that the creation story is not trying to teach you the literal order of history. It's trying to teach you fundamental truths about who God is and how we relate to God and how sin came into the world and why we need a Savior because we don't need to get caught up in timelines. We don't need to get caught up trying to figure out how to match up the six days of creation to things that we see in the world around us. We don't need to worry about it. It's not the point of the story. And if you disagree with me, that's fine. We can be friends still. It's okay. I don't mind. But I do believe that this frees us to contemplate the incredible vastness and majesty of God's creation and our smallness within it. Not just the physical vastness of it, but the temporal vastness of it. The amount of time that has passed since God began to create. As far as we can tell, the earth is over 4 billion years old. Humans have been around for 300,000 years. We only invented writing 6,000 years ago, which means we really don't know anything about 98% of human history. We don't know what happened. And against all this incredible backdrop of these truly incomprehensible spans of time, we live for less than a century. If I am very lucky, I have another 50, maybe 60 years left if I take really good care of myself and everything breaks the right way. But I will die. And you will die. Every 
one of us will face death just as every one of our ancestors did. I remember when my grandmother passed, my mother at the funeral was speaking, and she said, it seems so strange that she's gone and the world just carries on business as usual. Now, I've been fortunate not to have to do many funerals here at Asbury, but in Port Lavaca, I officiated so many funerals that the local funeral home director called me the angel of death. So I can tell you that that feeling, that, that disorientation we feel when someone we love dies and the rest of the world just continues on, that is universal. Everyone feels it. And it always seems to us like the world should just come to a complete stop. Because our world did. But that is not how it works. A death that destroys your entire world means nothing to 99.99% of the rest of the world. And that will be true when you die as well. You will be gone and the world will go on. The sun will still rise and set. The wind will still blow and everything will continue. And there is so much wisdom in recognizing and accepting this. And there's freedom in accepting this. Because it puts every decision we make in perspective. It puts our suffering in perspective. And it isn't an easy or happy thought, and I get that, but it is a true thought. And truth matters even when we don't like it. It frames everything else that we do. Things that can seem so important to us on the grand scale of history are so minor. We have to reckon with that. Because you can be as faithful as you want to be and you can be perfectly holy and wise. Well, maybe not perfectly, but you can be very holy and you can do all the right things and life may still not break your way. And part of the wisdom of God is understanding that as painful as it may be, you are just one small part of God's good creation. And again, that doesn't make us feel good inside. So if you're a visitor here, welcome to Asbury. Glad, you're, glad you picked this Sunday. I'm going to skip ahead to chapter 2, verses 12 through 21. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. And I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. So why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. And so I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. 
I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes... A person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. And this also is vanity and a great evil. And so this passage just takes all the things we've already discussed and it makes them more explicit. The same thing happens to us all. The richest man in the world still dies. The most powerful man in the world still dies. The wisest man in the world still dies. This is the king of Israel saying these things. We all face the same fate. And we all lack control over our fate. We can't even control if the person who inherits all of our good work in this life will squander it or not. And that's not just talking about the inheritance we pass on to our children. What about your work? What about all that you've built in your life? Now, pastors, we have to face this all the time, right? Because it's very rare that we spend our entire career at the same church. We will work for years to grow a church to establish habits and patterns and systems and ministries that will spread the gospel and foster spiritual growth. And we invest in people. And we pray for you and we work with you and we walk alongside you and we, we watch you grow and develop. But then one day we have to leave and, and then... We have to simply trust that whoever comes in after us won't squander all the good work that we've done. We also have to hope that we aren't going somewhere else to squander all the good work someone else has done. But you will all have to deal with that in one way or another. Maybe you own a business and one day someone else will be running it. One day someone else will take over all your clients at work. One day someone else will live in your house. One day someone else will drive your car. One day your child will no longer be able to come to you for advice or for comfort and they will have to turn to someone else. And this fate happens to every single one of us. So we we really ought to question just what our priorities in life should be. Because there is one thing that is certain and that is that you will lose everything one day. You will suffer the complete loss of all of your possessions, all of your wealth, and all of your family and friends because you will die. And so while you still draw breath, what is it that you want to prioritize? Will it matter how successful your business was if you didn't spend enough time with your family? And this isn't about making anyone feel guilt or shame. It's, it's about honestly evaluating your life and where your priorities are. And are you really focusing on the things that you want to focus on? How are you spending your limited time in this life knowing for certain that there is a limit, but not knowing where that limit is? So we come to chapter 9, verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the unintelligent, to the intelligent, not the unintelligent. Sometimes the unintelligent get the riches too, though. Nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Life is random. 
Bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. We've all seen it. We simply can't control what happens to us. And that is a hard thing to accept as well. We are not in control. We can't control how other people behave. We can't control how they treat us, how they speak to us, how they spend their money or their free time or how they vote. But wow, do we want to, don't we? Wouldn't that be great if we could make everyone think and do act like we want them to act? And i got to tell you, the church in particular has a well-earned reputation for trying hard to control how people behave, and it just doesn't work. All we can really do is teach people about God and Scripture and help them understand sin and its consequences and then love them unconditionally as they stumble around trying their best to be like Jesus, understanding that we are also stumbling around trying our best to be like Jesus. We're not in control. All we can control is ourselves. Once we accept that, the world becomes a much more pleasant place to live. We can control ourselves. We can choose wisdom and holiness, and we can trust that in so doing, we will spend our limited time here in the best possible way. If you read enough history, one thing you're going to find is that almost all of the greatest events in history were influenced by random chance. Every single one of them, there is an element of chance in there. All life has that happen to it. We are not in control. So we come to the very end of the book. And now we have the author speaking, right? Not the preacher, the person who's collecting all these sayings is talking at the very end in chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. And the preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Wisdom can make us uncomfortable. It, it forces us to confront unsettling truths about the world and about ourselves. But it also brings us closer to God. And here at the end of Ecclesiastes, the author has one final encouragement. He says, yes, all that's been said so far is true. And so the only thing that really matters is God. Listen to God. Be obedient to God. The way Jesus would say it is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The greatest commandment. Wisdom often makes us cynical, and I would know I studied philosophy, I dealt with philosophy professors, uh, so I'm an expert in cynicism. And sometimes in this great ironic twist, our quest to obtain wisdom actually makes us into fools. We learn just enough to think that we're wise on our own, and so we reject God's wisdom, and we begin to develop our own. And then we have a real problem. Because suddenly, the world seems like a tragic place, and everything seems meaningless 
which shouldn't be that surprising since our wisdom rejects the one source of meaning. Jesus offers us meaning in the midst of meaninglessness. He offers comfort in the midst of sorrow, peace in the midst of chaos. Life may seem random and cruel, but that's only because we broke God's creation with our sin. And while it's true that we are not in control, that doesn't mean that the world is out of control. We have no control, but Jesus does. One of the things I picked up at this conference in the last week was a talk on healing. And, and part of what this guy said to us about healing and asking God for healing applies actually really well to not just healing but to everything. So he talks about the five miracles of, of healing and how God heals when we, when we pray for it. And, and the first one is, you know, supernatural healing, which is, of course, what we all want, right? God just steps in and fixes the problem like that. He talked about the miracle of doctors in modern medicine, right? The idea being that, yes, you should pray for healing and you should believe and expect miracles, but you should also go to the doctor, there's wisdom there, right? Then there's the miracle of the body's ability to heal itself. But, but the final two are, are what really ties into Ecclesiastes so well. He talks about the miracle of sufficient grace. When Paul prays to have the thorn in his side removed, God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And again, this applies to more than just healing that we want. Because if part of the problem is that, that it seems like bad things happen to good people, sometimes God's answer is, yes, my grace is sufficient for you when bad things happen. And you may just have to rely on that for a while. And the final thing he talked about was the miracle of victorious death. Because the one thing we all know is that those of us who, who believe in Christ, when we die, we die triumphantly. Because Jesus has conquered death. Sometimes the answer to your prayer for healing might be, not in this life. Sometimes the answer to your search for the good life might be, not in this life. My grace is sufficient for you and your reward is going to lie beyond the grave. Because see, we know what the rest of the world doesn't, which is that the grave does not mark the end. We can't see beyond it, but we know we exist beyond it. So we find meaning in the knowledge and the certainty that God is in control. And so in the midst of all the chaos and the randomness and the storms of life, we lean on God and in Him we find the good life we've been looking for. And sometimes we just have to trust that He's going to hold us through all the storms of life, through all the suffering, through all the bad things that might happen to us, and He'll hold us through the grave as well. The answer to the question, what happens when Proverbs doesn't work out, is that we lean on God and we find our meaning in knowing God. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.